0: Thank you so much for listening, so let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health, and today you are in for a real treat. We have a repeat guest, Dr. Chris Kenobi, who is an ophthalmologist who has written the book Cure AMD, I believe is the title, which is the most comprehensive treatise on the histor- historical uh, progression of AMD in the world, and really provides unbelievable, overwhelming, compelling evidence of th- uh, that this is a disease of, of processed foods, essentially. And um, he gave another, and I first heard of his, his work through an Ancestral Health Foundation, or Ancestral Health Symposiums, and he gave a presentation there in 2018, and then he followed up last year 2019, with in both of those presentations, who I believe were the best at the entire event, and he even surpassed his 2018 presentation for the most concise and best 30 minute presentation of a summary of why we have chronic degenerative disease. It, it, it will just blow your mind, and we're going to put a, a a link, or actually not a link. we'll put an embed the video in this, in this page too, so you can watch it because it's extraordinary. And I invited him back to discuss this because you need to hear this information. It's not that you haven't heard it before, most likely, but you, when you understand it at the deep fundamental foundational basis of why making these choices can ruin your health and the health of those you love, you're going to be more motivated to make Good choices. So, welcome and thanks for coming back, Chris.
1: Joe, thank you so much for having me. It's it's an honor and a pleasure again uh, to talk to you, and thanks for that that very kind introduction.
0: Yeah, well, you deserve it, and uh, I think it might be best if you can kind of repeat what uh your presentation was and we can expand on it because it was so enlightening uh you you would uh in your last presentation with us or disc- interview you had discussed the uh impact of a and d in processed foods and you can certainly allude to that now but you you in, in this more recent one you're you're temp- which i think you're writing a book for you're in the you Really provide the broad framework of why we get sick, and, and these choices, and, and, and how it contributes not only heart disease and cancer, uh, and diabetes and obesity, and a, a age-related macular degeneration, but you know pretty much every basic disease, and how it relates to the mitochondrial dysfunction and the, the choice of these foods. So maybe you can start with that, and the, the disease progression, which is just. I don't think most people watching this understand that heart disease and cancer are new diseases, that they didn't exist before, essentially.
1: Right, exactly. So, they, um, to, to give a premise so that people know where we're going, Joe, um, let me just say this up front that um, what I understood um, as of 2013, once I um, understood Weston Price's research, is that it is man-made processed nutrient deficient and toxic foods that are driving all the chronic disease they're driving heart disease stroke hypertension cancer metabolic syndrome obesity macular degenerate well i didn't understand that then about macular degeneration but that's where my fundamental basis was uh way back in 2013 and then of course I applied those principles to look at, could it be processed foods driving macular degeneration as well? And so, um, and, and when I say processed, man-made, nutrient deficient, toxic, or processed foods, that is really just four things. It's really fairly simple. It's the, it's the nutrient deficient foods, which are refined, uh, wheat flour, refined added sugars, polyunsaturated vegetable oils, and trans fats, and those four things are new to our food supply. They we got you know we sugar has been around for a few hundred years, but it was um, we were consumed that in really low uh, doses until the until the late 19th century. We got uh, vegetable oils beginning after the American Civil War. And then we got refined white wheat flour in 1880, and we got trans fats by Procter and Gamble's Crisco in 1911. So that right there kind of sets the stage for people to understand that as you consume those foods, that's what what is driving almost all of our chronic metabolic and degenerative diseases. And so, and so, my recent research over the past year or two, I really dug into what, you know, the history of all of these, or most, most of these chronic diseases. And I can give you some of that here. So, for example, with heart disease, what I found out was that this disease was also an extreme medical rarity in the 19th century. If we go back to we have data from uh, a paper by Jones and colleagues in 2011. And what they showed was that way back in the town of Boston in 1811, uh, there was no known heart attacks. Um, Only 2.6% of that population in Boston died of sudden death. So even if we thought every single one of those was heart disease, which they weren't, but even if you wanted to say that they were, it's only 2.6%. In the, in the 19th century, there were eight published papers on cases of heart attack. And people who don't believe that, you know, physicians understood medicine and understood these things, they haven't went back and read a lot of these texts because physicians of the 19th century were brilliant. They were astute clinicians and they made extraordinary discoveries. But anyway, so I do right, an let me Let me
0: just interject here because- sure. n- people watching may not realize the depth of your uh, academic research and that you actually read these studies. You're just not citing from some meta-analysis. I mean, you went back and read the original research.
1: Right, right, right. Um, So, yeah, one of those papers, in fact, uh, was um, uh, went blank on Sir William Osler, 1897. He's a famed physician. He he was one of the founding members of Johns Hopkins Medical Center. And in 1897, he, gave, he, he uh, published a paper in which he re- reviewed his previous 21 years of hospital experience, and he noted maybe around a half a dozen cases of angina, chest pain that might be uh, related to heart disease, but not a single myocardial infarction, not a single heart attack. And 2010, um, you know, some 13 years later, he, he recounted 1910,
0: 1910.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. 1910. Yeah. 1910. He recounted 208 additional cases of angina, which he attributed to the stress of modern day life, I think. And uh, if we go back to now, I'm going to go back just a hair here. But in 1900, from the Jones paper, what they discovered was that uh, Heart disease um, accounted for 12.5% of deaths, but that was known not to be coronary artery disease, the one that everybody thinks about today, that was cardiac valvular disease, which is driven by uh, infectious diseases like rheumatic fever, syphilis, and endocarditis. It wasn't heart attacks. In fact, it was 1912 that James Herrick uh, published the paper on the first known heart attack in the United States, first known heart attack with documented autopsy evidence. And then yet, this is what's uh, staggering is that 30 years, you know, some 30 years later in the 1930s, heart, heart disease became the leading cause of death. Uh, it was virtually unknown in 1900. Nobody, nobody knew what a heart attack was in 1900 nobody had seen Well, the one. first
0: reported case was was 1912 that's astounding 1912. it's astounding I, I i bet less than five percent maybe less than one percent of physicians know that
1: right absolutely so by 2010 32.3 percent of people in the united states are dying heart disease but if you go back and we can do this in some detail uh, and i I will come back to this but if you go back what we're going to notice is that vegetable oils and and trans fats margarines those things were replacing animal fats and that is the major driver of this i believe so okay let's talk about cancer so again from the jones paper and the the data from boston what they showed was that five of 942 people died of cancer in 1811 that's one in 188 deaths by 1900 cancer took one of 17 people it was 5.6 or 5.8 percent um today it's 31.2 percent i believe of people are dying of cancer in the United States. So we went from, in 1811, 1811, one in 188 deaths due to cancer, 1900, one in 17, today, almost one in three. Type two diabetes. Um, What we know is that in the the 19th century and for all of history prior, any form of diabetes was extremely rare. 1935, we have, um, that was the first studies it was the equivalent of an n haynes study but anyway it was uh, in 1935 1936 di- uh, diabetes was 0.37 percent and then it just steadily climbed all the way up to 2015 we're at uh, 9.4 percent that's a 25-fold increase in diabetes in a period of 80 years 25 fold
0: but but Chris, it's it's even worse than that because that's documented full blown clinical diabetes. If you if you integrate in pre diabetes and insulin resistance, it's literally eighty five percent of the population. Eighty five percent.
1: Right. Exactly. That there. You, I'm sure you're aware of it, Joe. There was a recent uh, paper that showed that only twelve percent of Americans were healthy on today. Uh, with analyzing five parameters of metabolic health. And I think it was uh, uh, blood pressure, HDL, triglycerides, um, and waist circumference. There's, I think there's one more in there. But anyway, only 12% of Americans were healthy without medications on those five parameters. The, in other words, at the other 88% are metabolically unhealthy. And like you're saying, yeah, something like 60, 80 some percent of them are headed for type two diabetes. So it's staggering. Um, Let me talk about obesity real quick. So in the 19th century, there is data from prisons in Texas and Nebraska. And if you look at these prisoners, what they, they recorded their height and weight so you could calculate their BMI. And these are male prisoners, age eighteen to eighty, and their the 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 prevalence of obesity was one point two percent. One point two percent. Okay. Fast forward now. We don't have any uh, data until nineteen sixty, and obesity in the United States in nineteen sixty was thirteen percent. By nineteen eighty-eight, it was twenty-three percent. Today, 39.8% of, of adults in the United States are obese, and I just saw a paper uh, come out that they extrapolated, they're looking at what will be the prevalence of obesity in another 10 years, in 2030, and it's, it, it's going to be 50%. So we're looking at 50% obesity by 2030. Um, macular degeneration another one of these chronic uh, diseases. So what we know is, is, and I'll make this really short because um, I've, I've, I've hit this before, but we can go into more detail if you want to, Joe. But in a nutshell, macular degeneration was discoverable because of the invention of the ophthalmoscope in 1851. And the ophthalmoscope was in broad use by, by 1880. By 1900, there was um, 140 versions available. By 1914, there was two over 200 versions of ophthalmoscope in use around the world, and yet between 1851 and 1930 approximately, there was no more than about 50 cases of age-related degeneration AMD, in all the world's literature. 50 cases. Um, it was virtually unknown. and. All of the evidence I can find supports this. Uh, most of the textbooks back in that era, they uh, either didn't mention macular degeneration or they gave it one one sentence because it was extraordinarily rare. Um, and then uh, the prevalence began to increase in the 1930s and by 1975, uh, four and a half million Americans uh, would have had macular degeneration in 1975 based on the Framingham study. But if you just went back 50 years, there would have been no more than 50 cases in all the world's literature. And that number has continued to climb. So if you, by, by 1994, 26 mil, uh, I'm sorry, 1994, 15 million Americans with macular degeneration, today about 26 million. Worldwide, as of this year, 2020, It is uh, estimated that there are 196 million people with macular degeneration, and that number is expected to be 288 million by 2040, so another 20 years. Now, here's the thing, is just one little caveat here that we, it's a sad fact, but you have to realize that in 2020, almost all the people that have macular degeneration today won't even be alive in 2040. Because they're in their last 20 or 25, 30 years of life, right? Because most people with macular degeneration are over age 50. So the thing is, the majority of those won't even won't even be alive in 20 years. So the numbers are just with all of these diseases, and I've done the same thing with metabolic syndrome and with myopia, nearsightedness, it tracks, they all track essentially the same. We've seen we we see all of these go from rarity in the 19th century and early 20th century to staggering numbers today, and the the prevalence continues to increase.
0: Well, thank you for that excellent summary that um, provides insights that many people probably were not aware of, because it just it's unusual to look at historical pers- perspectives. So now that you've established that these are rampant diseases that didn't exist literally more than one hundred and twenty-five years ago, essentially they were they were not there, or they were very very rare. Virtually no one was dying from them. So. What I'd like to to, to go into now is the common denominator that all of these diseases share, which essentially is mitochondrial dysfunction at the core and how you tie in, as you mentioned earlier, the, the cause, which is the processed foods, how that contributes to mitochondrial dysfunction because understanding the mechanism, I believe, is a powerful motivation to change behavior? Because when you realize what this is doing at a molecular or a biological basis, I think you're gonna be more uh, excited about making healthy choices.
1: Right, so if we look at, uh, let me first mention what has happened to our food supply in this regard, just in a slightly more detail because Overall, as I mentioned before, what's happened is is, uh, we have replaced nutrient-dense, healthy, safe, organic foods with nutrient-deficient, toxic, dangerous foods. And as of 2009, the food supply in the United States, I'm sorry, the food consumption, 63% of the American diet is made up of those four foods. Uh, Added sugars, refined white wheat flour, vegetable oils, and trans fats, 63%. And if you add in alcohol, you're up to 70%. That right there is-
0: Sometimes we call these ultra-processed foods, which you can basically get at the gas station.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Not not just processed, -processed. ultra-processed.
1: Exactly, ultra-processed. And and so if you look at, for example, with the vegetable oil, so in in the year 1900, when everybody was healthy, 99% of added fats in the diet were um, animal fat, lard, butter, and beef tallow. But by 2005, 105 years later, 86% of the added fats in the diet of Americans are vegetable oil derived. vegetable oils or margarines butter substitutes or whatever ultimately all of those come from these dangerous toxic vegetable oils that don't provide healthy fat soluble vitamins and they're extraordinarily toxic and we can go into that but okay so as as far as we look at one of the things that I have discovered and I I didn't discover this let me back up and rephrase it that, that i've learned by standing on the shoulders of people like joe mercola and <laughs> and a hundred other researchers that have put this all together so i'm standing on the shoulders of giants but but what we now understand is that it is mitochondrial dysfunction that ties together all of these chronic diseases heart disease cancer stroke hypertension obesity Metabolic syndrome, all the macular degeneration, all these diseases share in common one thing, and it's mitochondrial dysfunction. And the reason that they do is because I can only uncover one uh, pathway by which I believe this is all driven. And it's because when you consume a whole lot of these edible seed oils, call them edible oils vegetable oils, seed oils or omega 6 there that's all the same thing whatever you want to call it but when you consume these to excess like we're doing today then those oils those omega 6s they are very very fragile molecules and they oxidize and then they also break down into toxic aldehydes and w- when So when we try to metabolize these, in other words, when we try to burn these for fuel or we store them, what happens is they create what I call a catastrophic peroxidation cascade. And what I mean by that is that they cause um, oxidation in fats, proteins, uh, carbohydrates, in your cells and cellular membranes everywhere and ultimately, what this does is it damages a molecule called cardiolipin. And now I can pronounce it right now that Dr. Mercola corrected me last is, time. It, I, it lipid, I
0: I it, did you look it up? Because maybe I'm wrong. I don't know.
1: Yeah. No, I think you're right. So, I, some of the, uh, I, I heard it pronounced both ways cardiolipin and cardiolipin. And naturally, I chose the wrong, uh, probably <laughs> the wrong version. But anyway, there is a a molecule, um, it is a phospholipid in our mitochondria and this this, uh, phospholipid called cardiolipin, it is sort of, um, you know, without pictures, it's hard to describe, but it's a scaffold upon which the electron transport chain of our mitochondria depends entirely. And when this cardiolipin, cardiolipin, When it uh, is altered because the linoleic acid, the fatty acid in it is oxidized or replaced in the face of a high PUFA, high edible oil diet, it damages it and what happens is, is that the, the mitochondria are no longer able to hold a proton gradient. They lose that proton gradient and this causes loss of energy. And so the mitochondrion then becomes sick. And when it becomes sick, I mean, it's not producing energy properly. Well, without energy, everything begins to fail. And so what happens uh, in this scenario is that one of the first things that that happen is, is that you can't properly burn fats for fuel and you become more carbohydrate dependent. And I think you know this makes sense to me and I hope it does to uh, viewers, because well, as well, we're gaining as we're gaining weight, and we're, we're if we're becoming obese, one of the things that I believe happens is is we ca- we crave carbs, and I and I think we crave carbs because our mitochondria can't burn fat for fuel properly, and but they're still burning carbs uh, better, and so it's harder for them. As as we know, when people try to go ketogenic. And they're overweight, sometimes it takes weeks or months for these people to, to be able to, to become ketogenic. In other words, they can go really high fat um, and you know burn that fat for fuel because their mitochondria are sick. I'm sorry, Joe, you were going to say something.
0: Well, I was just wanted to point out that, it, that uh, it would be easier for those listening or watching this to also watch the presentation you gave on ancestral health because you you use graphic slides in your powerpoint that wonderfully illustrate what you just verbally expressed and uh, the cardiolipin uh, is uh, actually in the inner mit- it's the only place in your entire body is in the inner mitochondrial membrane and you show how this leakage prevents that proton gradient from from going out and how the cy- how the cytochromes embedded in that membrane are essentially passing the hydrogen ions into the inner mitochondrial space and, and how they pass out through cytochrome c5 uh, atp synthetase to generate atp and when you've got that leaky cardiolipin because of the uh, essentially increasing take of the pufas you can't create that gradient and you you're essentially that's what causes the mitochondrial dysfunction it's 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 a, it's, you just did a wonderful job of illustrating that. What, that's the, really the best presentation I've seen to ever, to explain that. So I would encourage people watching this to, to view that video too.
1: Thank you, that, that's, a, that's a great explanation too. And one of the things, Joe, that, that was, um, when I first was studying this, maybe a year ago or so, trying to understand it, what, what was um, a paradox to me is the fact that um, the cardiolipin molecule depends on linoleic acid, and linoleic acid is the primary omega-6 in our diets. And But in a high linoleic acid diet, in other words, a high omega-6 fat diet, what we're seeing is that the linoleic acid in the cardiolipin molecule is destroyed. And, and, and so in high PUFA diets, for example, the linoleic acid in the cardiolipin is about one-fifth as much, no, I'm sorry, one-tenth as much as it is in the low PUFA diet. And so, and I thought, this doesn't make sense to me. How come we're consuming all this linoleic acid and we need it in this cardiolipin, in, in, you know, where it's critical to the function of the mitochondrion, but then I finally began to understand, like I said, by standing on the shoulders of giants who have, have studied this, that when you're consuming a high PUFA diet, you're just creating. It's it's just like having a house full of little tiny papers, and you're uh, all over the place, and you're welding or something. Sparks are flying. You're just going to set off. You're putting. You're going to c- catch the house on fire when you consume all these, uh, these vegetable oils, because you're going to, you're going to be filling up your, your fat cells and your tissues, your, your membranes with linoleic acid, these omega-6s, and they're very fragile, and you're going to start this catastrophic peroxidation cascade. And you're also going to destroy the linoleic acid in the cardiolipin molecules where it is critical. And that is where we lose energy in our mitochondria, make our mitochondria sick, and then we become sick. And this is how we become tired, fatigued, and we're gaining weight all at the same time. But, you know, I mean, people are interested, I think most people are interested in how to lose weight, but, but the, the, by far what's a million times more important is to be healthy and this is how we get healthy. So the same things that make you healthy also make you leaner or stay lean.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. And um, it's interesting that some oils that are widely promoted as being healthy and beneficial, especially as part of the Mediterranean diet, would be olive oil. And you can get biodynamic olive oil, which is like some of the best, organic and biodynamic, the best olive oil on the planet, which we actually have in our store. But if you, if you have too much of that, that is loaded with omega-6 too. So you could, there are programs in the market. Uh, Chronometer is my favorite, but there's other free fit, uh, fit uh, nutrient trackers that will allow you to actually quantify the, the level of omega-6 that you are consuming if you accurately enter your data. And if you do and you start having six, seven, eight tablespoons a day of olive oil, you're going to be through the roof. You're, you're, your six to three ratio is going to be 20 to one. So you know it's it's all omega six no matter where where it comes from and you've got to be really diligent about this and replicate our ancestral patterns.
1: Right, I agree. I, I think people are overdoing it with the olive oil. Quite frankly, um, I think they'd be far better off getting back to uh, healthy pasture raised animal fats in the form of butter, lard, or or beef tallow. So beef raised on grass that's a that's they're fantastically healthy. Um, so yeah, you know, one of the, I might mention here, Joe, one of the studies that I reviewed in that, that presentation at the Ancestral Health Symposium this past summer was um, the study where, they, where uh, researchers back in the 90s put, um, they put uh, rats on uh, three different isocaloric diets, meaning these are rats that, that they were all getting the same calories, protein, fat, carbs, and omega three. The only thing they varied was the omega six, and they gave them three different, three different uh, forms of omega six. One was beef fat, and the second was olive oil, and the third was uh, safflower oil. So the safflower oil is super high uh, uh, omega six fat, and um, and so what they what they should, I'll just get to the uh, the end result was that in a matter of three weeks now these were young adult rats and they were all gaining weight but after three in in just three weeks time as compared to so that even the b fat group gained some weight but as compared to the b fat group the olive oil group gained seven and a half percent more weight that's 12.8 pounds human equivalent and the um but the sapphire oil group gained 12.3 percent more weight than the b fat group That's 21 pounds human equivalent in three weeks. So when people say three weeks, I mean, the equivalent of 21 pounds. So when people say that, well, weight gain is all about calories. No, it is not. This is, this is, you know, proof, as much proof as you could want that it has everything to do with the kind of fat you're consuming for one thing.
0: Yes, indeed. You know, it occurred to me that there was another variable that you didn't address in your presentation that fits into the hypothesis completely, but it was, and it's, it's a, a, a dipeptide, which is two amino acids put together, beta alanine and histidine, called carnosine, which is only available in animal products. And carnosine forms a very unusual, well, not unusual, but relatively unique, unique property within biological biology in that uh, it serves as a scavengy, scavenger or a sink for something called reactive carbonyl groups. And I'm actually writing a paper, a review paper on this because it's so fascinating. And uh, what, so what happens is these reactive carbonyl groups are the intermediaries that actually go on to form the advanced lip oxidation end products and mass end products. So if you can get grab these carbonyls before they attack these proteins and these fats, you can essentially stop this vicious cycle that you referenced earlier. So just the fact that you're eating real unprocessed food and, and meats, you know, vegetable, you know, this movement towards uh, exclusion of animal products and meats is going to lower your, your carnosine levels. And clearly vegetarians have 50% less carnosine than those who are not vegetarians. And carnosine is really an important nutrient to, to limit the damage from these oxidation products.
1: That is really interesting. And um, yeah, I was aware that, of the importance of carnosine, but I have not studied that like you have, Joe. So.
0: Yeah, it's, it's yeah, fascinating. And the reason I'm going deep into it, because it's also important for mitochondrial function. And there's some very intriguing Russian research that was done about 20 years ago in their cosmonaut program that ha- have actually explored the use of carnacine to radically improve mitochondrial function, which is what fascinated me about it. So I went deep into the literature and I couldn't believe it. I mean, this is like a, a pearl it's so simple you know it's, it's an endogenous dipeptide your body makes this and it's, so it's, there's the side effects are nil you can't overdose on it and it just has all these magnificent benefits and especially in the context of a modern day diet where you have these massive amounts of oxidative
1: stressors right right but wouldn't you agree i mean the the massive amounts of oxidative stressors are primarily coming from pufa oils
0: Oh, absolutely. I, I think if I was to name only one single food, that would be it. I think if you could remove that from the average person's diet, the health in this country would just dramatically explode. Obviously, you'd have to replace it with healthier, healthier equivalents, but yeah, it would just explode. I mean, that's this, that, that just blows away, in my view, the, the, the danger of sugar. There's no comparison.
1: Oh, that, that is exactly what I believe is. I, I don't think sugar could even begin to compare uh almost no matter what the dose i mean you know our our research we found in 2010 if you look at the consumption of vegetable oils um by 2010 it was 80 grams a day per person in the u.s 80 grams is it's nine calories per gram for fat that's 720 calories and that is about 32 percent of u.s caloric intake um I don't remember exactly what sugar is today, but I think it's more around 20, uh, 20% or so. Maybe you know, Joe. I just didn't. It
0: depends on which up. diet you're following. But, you know, if you're, I don't know what it is for the general population, but, you know, I'm a strong advocate of low-carb diets. <laughs> sure. You know, it's. A, but I'm wondering what your review of the literature suggests is in sort of an ideal composition of the ratios of the different types of fats, you know, mono saturated and polys.
1: Um oh that's a really tough question. Are you saying what do I think would be Yeah, what, what,
0: what would ratio you know, these nutrient profile programs like chronometer can easily tell you your percentages, I mean down to the single digit. So what do you think the ideal percentage is for each of those?
1: Okay. Oh, wow. I've actually never uh, thought of it that way. Um, so uh, this is going to be very off the cuff, Joe. But first of all, I would say that number one is the PUFAs, which is omega-6 and om- omega-3 together, essentially. They only need to be about 2% of our consumption, around 2%. That's um, total calories. To- yes, total calories. You're right. Right. So, um, and well, okay. So you're really wanting to know, um, okay? I mean, I can, you
0: can either way. I just want to make sure that we're clear on what your percentages are. Saying.
1: Well, so I would, if it were me, I would say that the saturated fats ought to be the huge bulk of the rest, and monounsaturated could be should be smaller. Um, and I don't really know if I could attach numbers. to those but uh but again i think the most critical thing is that we have to understand and accept the fact that the saturated fats are fantastically healthy they just can't hardly oxidize no matter what the monounsaturated fats like oleic acid in olive oil it's also much less likely to oxidize quite similar to saturated fats but not 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 quite as stable and then the polyunsaturated fats, although essential fats, we have to have the omega-6 linoleic acid, 18-carbon linoleic acid, and the omega-3 18-carbon alpha-linolenic acid, the ALA. Uh, we have to have small amounts of those in our diet. But um, as I mentioned in our uh, in, in that presentation, I went back and did the analysis to try to look at what our omega six consumption would have been in 1865, and essentially for all of history prior, for uh, for people that were living like like we do. I mean, most of the con- animal uh, food consumption would be uh, beef, pork, and and uh, fowl. And of those, your linoleic acid consumption total. I did the analysis looking at um, us consuming those pastured animals, 40% of our diet coming from fat, and the omega-6 consumption modeled would have been about 2.2 grams per person per day in 1865. And so it was 4.86 grams by 1909. By 1999, it was 18 grams. So let me go back to that 2.2 grams of omega-6 in 1865. So probably roughly half of the, uh, half that number would be omega-3, I think. Uh, maybe more than that, but maybe only about a gram or so of omega-3 and 2.2 grams of omega-6, roughly. So we really only need you know very tiny amounts of these. And I think the reason is because our body is meant to grab onto those PUPAs and put them where they need to be like in our mitochondrial membranes. That's in, and you know, there's other places, but I'm just saying they, they are for very precise locations in our body. They're not meant to be stored in fat tissue and burned for fuel. That's just not their. That's not their. And that wasn't the intent.
0: Yeah. It, it's just fascinating to me because I, I'm just in, enamored with the mitochondria and how they function and you know and and the cardiolipin is so essential and integral to their ability to do that as i said it doesn't exist anywhere else in the body except in your in your in the inner mitochondrial membrane and and how nature has put that together to optimize us maximizing energy from our fuel sources i mean bacteria can't do that they have they basically do have glycolysis and, and uh, anaerobic fermentation to produce their energy, which is orders, well, at least an order of magnitude less efficient than the right. mitochondria. And, you know, our, our mitochondria are, are 10,000 times, they produce more energy, 10,000 times more energy per square, ser- per, per density than the sun. I forget the, you know, per, per cubic inch or whatever, centi- per, per cubic centimeter. So, I mean, they're, they're, it's a radical amount of energy that they produce. It's just crazy.
1: Right, right. Yeah, another one, I might mention the, um, that heart study that was done, I think it was back in the 90s that I, that I reviewed at the uh, AHS, um, the one where the researchers, they ha- hypothesized that a high PUFA diet would cause the cardiac mitochondria to dysfunction. And so, what they did, they took two groups of, of rats and they, they put one on a high PUFA diet, which was basically just standard rat chow plus sunflower oil, 20% sunflower oil. And the, the low PUFA group was just uh, standard rat chow. So, what it would have, you know, that, that's low omega 6 essentially. And four weeks later on this diet, because of, I'll just simplify this and not get into all the, de- the, the the molecular detail, but four weeks later, the rats on the high PUFA diet had heart failure. They had a 32% reduction in cardiac output uh, at high afterloads, which means that at the systolic blood pressure of 135 millimeters mercury, like ours, essentially, they had reduction in their cardiac output. And why is that? Well, what had happened was is that the high PUFA diet, just exactly as we're talking about, all that linoleic acid destroyed the linoleic acid in their cardiolipin. It was reduced um, tenfold, I believe it was. And then, and their, their cardiolipin was reduced to one fifth of what it was in the low PUFA group. And because of that, their mitochondria dysfunction, and they lose energy, they become weak, and here we are, four weeks later, and these rats have heart failure. I'm telling you, the more I look at all of this and think about how fast you can devastate uh, an animal with these kinds of diets, I think humans, probably tolerate all of this disastrous food supply in an extraordinary way. I, it's incredible that we, we haven't killed the whole planet yet. <laughs> yeah. It's just Isn't incredible it
0: just a to me. or observation, yeah. <laughs> we are we are exceptionally resilient as a species, there's no question. And it is shocking that we can we can tolerate such abuse. Uh, but the counter to that is that our bodies are just so extraordinary. I mean, they can tolerate this abuse. Most of us can, at least until the point where it gets, you know, it's it the straw that broke the camel's back. But that we have the potential to reverse this damage. So let's give people some hope because say, say you've got these damaged mitochondria and you've, you're in heart failure. You've got cancer. You've got diabetes, metabol- metabolic syndrome. So your body can be rescued unless you're gonna die in a few days. You have the capacity to recover. So let's give them some hope and talk about the counter to this.
1: Oh, absolutely. Okay, so so now people may not want to hear this, but they need to hear the fact that. These polyunsaturated fats, when we consume them, as I said, they get stored in our body for the most part. We're, I don't think we're very efficient at burning these for fuel, which is beta oxidation. Um, and so they're stored in our in our fat cells mostly. And the half-life of those oils, unfortunately, is 600, about 600 to 680 days, depending on what study you want to look at but roughly i hate to say but the half-life is about almost two years Mm -hmm. and so it will take years to reduce your uh your body stores of these omega-6 fats and if i just mention personally i quit consuming these fats in 2011 because i didn't understand any of this until 2011. (laughs) i was just dumb as a stick i'm just gonna say it i was like your typical physician i didn't know anything about nutrition nothing um, except what i'd read in magazines and so but anyway when i first understood this and i quit consuming vegetable oils in 2011 honestly i think it was 2015 or 2016 before i started hitting uh, uh, a lot better health Um, but I do believe that in three days I was healthier. And, but I, I believe that even years later, I keep getting healthier. Um, you know, at age 59, I can weight lift, sprint, run stairs. I do uh, so many of the things I could do when I was in my twenties and I wasn't headed that way, uh, back in 2011, I was headed for absolute disaster. I mean, I might not have even been alive today if it weren't for beginning to understand all this and changing my diet.
0: Yeah, yeah. um, I'm so glad because you're making such magnificent contributions. But so that is really an important concept uh, and and relatively reinforces the pernicious nature of these fats because they're gonna stick around for two years, two years. If you eat sugar tonight, it's not gonna stick around for two years. You're gonna metabolize, you're gonna get a little insulin spike, you're gonna have a little, maybe some ages that last for a few months and that's it. So this is, this is the reason, you know, you've know, you only got so much time and you wanna focus that time on your maximum benefit and that is eliminating ideally, these toxic fats. I mean, this is this is what's going to take you out prematurely.
1: Right. Absolutely. Right. So one of the other, um, you haven't asked me this, but if you don't mind me mentioning one of the other huge pathways that I've been studying and, and I, um, over the past year or so is the toxic aldehydes that come out of these omega-6 fats. And so when, when you consume an, an omega-6 fat, linoleic acid, essentially, uh, it could be arachidonic acid, but the huge majority of it is 18-carbon lino, linoleic acid. And one of the, the very first things that happens is, is it'll react with um, a hydroxyl radical or a peroxyl radical, and it'll produce what's called a lipid hydroperoxide. And the, this lip, these lipid hydroperoxides, they rapidly degenerate into into all of these toxic aldehydes. Now, mm-hmm. the chemists and the biochemists, they call them um, aldehydic metabolites, I think is what they call them essentially, because there's so many of them. Mm-hmm. But Let me mention a few. There, uh, let me mention five things. 4-hydroxenoninol, hne malondialdehyde, or MDA, um, the so-called oxidized linoleic acid metabolites, like 9 and 13-HODE, um, pyrrole and acrolein. And uh, now most of my research in, in terms of what these do, it's focused on what's going on in, in the eye. But these are extraordinarily dangerous molecules. For example, like uh, HNE um, has been tied to virtually, I think almost every single uh, chronic disease there is: heart disease, atherosclerotic disease. Alzheimer's, macular degeneration, obesity, uh, type 2 diabetes—all of those have been connected to HNE, and it has been called a causal factor. It is that powerful. These are extraordinarily dangerous molecules at very low concentrations. MDA, malondialdehyde, is—it's an extreme toxin, cytotoxic. It is mutagenic it's carcinogenic could drive the cancers uh the um, oxidized linoleic acid metabolites like the 9 and 13 hode um they are driving uh oxidized ldl for example which is a huge player in atherosclerosis um pyrrole, for example let me just mention, in the eye, this is pretty interesting, is that it induces autoantibodies. And one of the places these are critically important, um, these so-called CEP, which is for carboxyethylpyrrole, CEP autoantibodies, they're attacking the retina directly. And we see these at more than double the numbers in people with macular degeneration. So we have a major driver there. Um, acrolein. Acrolein is the toxic, the toxic uh, aldehyde that is in cigarette smoke and vegetable oils. And um, to give you an idea, there the an average cigarette produces uh, 18 to 98 micrograms of acrolein when you smoke it, but Um, A large French fries, roughly 154 grams of French fries from a fast food restaurant, um, Grootfeld's research showed, produces one to one and a half milligrams of acrolein. So let me put this in perspective. So um, eating a large French fries can give you the same amount of acrolein as smoking um, 17 to 26 average cigarettes, or up to 83 cigarettes lowest in acrolein. Now, they both can cause lung cancer, for example. And, um, uh, you know, here we can see that you're getting a much larger dose of acrolein from eating french fries than you're ever going to get from, you know, even being near smoke, uh, for example. Back in the 1980s, there was, they were uh, noting a large number of uh, Chinese women, this is in China, um, that were developing lung cancer, and yet they had never smoked. I think it was 80% of them, if I remember the number right, had never smoked cigarettes, and yet they had lung cancer. And what they finally connected this to, after studying and studying this, was that these women were far more likely to be wok cooking and cooking with, for whatever reason, at the time they were using mostly rapeseed oil, which is one of these high PUFA oils. Well, the rapeseed or any of these PUFA oils, when you cook with them, they're emitting the acrolein into the gaseous phase and they're inhaling it. So it's just basically like smoking, perhaps you know, just as bad, maybe worse, I don't know. but. But in the city of, I think it was Hong Kong, if I remember right, they analyzed the amount of acrolein coming from automobiles. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but I believe it's one and a half tons per year coming from all the automobiles, because automobiles uh, excrete some acrolein too, because it's smoke. But, but as compared to the, to the acrolein coming out of kitchens, that was like seven or eight tons emitted into the atmosphere from cooking with vegetable oils. So again, I mean, just everything I see about vegetable oils, you just see toxicity and danger everywhere. And I might mention that again, one of the most important things that goes way back to Weston Price's research is the fact that when you substitute vegetable oils for these healthy animal fats, you're losing all of the fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, and K2 that you'd be getting in those fats. So if you eat lard, butter, beef tallow, or you're just eating the the meat, you're you're getting the fat, you're getting those vitamins. You will never get any of those vitamins in vegetable oil. The only thing you'll get is some vitamin E, but you won't get A, D, and K2. And let's face it, meat is the most is the most densely nutritious food that most anybody in the United States ever gets.
0: That's correct. And the, that's a, I would thoroughly agree with that statement and, and but what's not fully appreciated is one of the most important ingredients is that carnosine, which I just mentioned, which fits into what you were t- talking about with acrolein and MDA and 4, 4 H N E and 4 H H N. These are all, toxic byproducts of oxidation and if you get them and have that carcin present in the tissue it can bind to the precursor that reactive carbonyl that forms all of those and more that ultimately go on to damage your cell membranes dna proteins uh stem cells i mean they just devastate your health so having that having large uh, you know significant amounts of meats uh, uh your diet is going to provide you with carnosine and there probably is an optimal types of carnosine as a supplement but i think it's best to get it from food because you're gonna get all the other ancillary nutrients but there's uh you know i'm doing a lot of uh, investigation is to determine how to best optimize that integration of carnosine in your diet but carnosine is crucial in this equation and virtually i and I've, i've i've there's thousands of papers written i've examined most of the recent ones and like virtually no one is exploring the use of therapeutic carnosine to, to see how it's, it's impacting these, uh, these toxic aldehydes. They just aren't. It's not being done. It's not really understood. So no, no one's studying it.
1: Wow. Joe, I did not understand that at all. I wasn't even aware of that connection between carnosine and how it could impact The uh, the the peroxidation.
0: Yes, uh, it it is massive. It it. is absolutely massive, and it's you know, and it's no surprise that if you're if you're excluding meat products from your diet, that you're in an increased risk, especially if you're consuming many of these. Uh, industrial processed oils. I mean, it's a prescription for disaster. You can, Low carnosine in industrial processed oils, you're going to die prematurely from one of these degenerative diseases that you described so eloquently in the beginning of the presentation.
1: Right. And, you know, I just made a note of that for myself, because that'll be one of the next things I need to investigate. So thanks for Well, I'll speed up, up your research. I've,
0: I've been studying this for the last three months, and I've got like A paper with about 40 pages and 300 references that I still need to draft into something that's that's readable, but I'll send it to you as soon as I'm finished with the draft.
1: Yeah, you know, I honestly think that may be one of the only things I did uh, relatively correct in my lifetime was I always was a big meat eater. Um, Yeah one of the ways that i went you know just along that that line of thinking was i wasn't getting the collagen part of it Mm -hmm. that's for sure again i didn't have a clue but um but that just you know adds to our body of knowledge what you're mentioning there that meat has been vilified so much Mm -hmm. especially uh red meat and the uh vegetable oils have been elevated uh, by major nutrition organizations in in terms of their benefit. And uh, this is just a setup for disaster. So you're you're going low meat. So you have people avoiding the red meat and increasing their vegetable oils. What could be worse?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I just want to step back because to, to tie the pieces together that you laid down so well initially is that Heart disease did not exist in the 1800s. It was a non-entity, okay? 1912, the first reported case of a heart attack, 1912. Then we start to get the epidemic in the 30s. And by the 50s, the leading theory of thought as to the etiology or the cause of this epidemic, they vilified fat. Right. They vilified fat and they, 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 they said, okay, they vilified the wrong fat, though. They vilified saturated fat and said, increase the vegetable oils, the industrial process. That was the biggest. They're going to look back at this in, in, in not too distant future is one of the biggest mistakes in the history of medicine, of what they did, how they ruined civilization for decades. Right. And me too. I got caught up in this thing because I didn't know any better in the '60s and '70s. I was ha- I was having all these poly, these industrialized processed vegetable oils, which just set me up for health problems in the future. But thankfully, our bodies can reverse it. It just takes a while.
1: Right. I, I was in the exact same boat, and except not not until <laughs> I didn't change that until 2011. Um, I, and I the 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 ironic thing is, is I always wanted to be really healthy. I was always athletic and this was always important to me, but I didn't, just like you said, I mean, I didn't know any better. Didn't learn any of this in medical school. And you just have to, I think a lot of the people get into this sphere uh, of nutrition research because of their, their own health issues. And that's exactly what it was for me.
0: Yeah, so maybe we can expand a little bit too, because if you don't mind sharing some of your personal health history, because I know you you shared with me how you uh, your health radically improved in some of this, in sec for some of the inflammatory arthritic conditions you've had struggled with for a long time, and then we had gotten to dialoguing about them, and uh, and I, I suggested you look into oxalates, which of course are to, almost all, exclusively from plant-based materials. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to share that and what your current status is on that.
1: Do you mean with regard to the um, oxalates, Joe? or yeah, the the oxalates. General?
0: No, just the oxalates, yeah.
1: Okay, sure. So uh, just a, a sentence or two on the, the backup story is that sure, sure. the whole reason that I ended up in, uh, in this, in nutrition, research is because of my own arthritis primarily. I don't think if it, if it weren't for that, I don't think I'd be here today uh, and I wouldn't be researching all this, but my life changed in 2011 after I had suffered with arthritis for about 16 years. And um, and I went on a kind of a limited paleo diet and, and things started getting better, but I was actually, uh, so did pretty well on sort of a paleo diet for a few years And then um, in retrospect, I even started uh, what I thought make my diet healthier. And and some of the things I was doing was I was eating more spinach, more sweet potatoes, um, maybe a few more nuts. But anyway, and my arthritis was getting worse. (laughs) And and. Um so i one of what happened was is this spring of this last year, the spring of twenty nineteen I was seeing a functional medicine doctor in boulder Colorado, and um I came across one paragraph in some ma- materials she had uh given to me, and it was about oxalates and I didn't know anything about oxalates uh but except that they uh they um they occur, uh, most kidney stones, about 80% of them are oxalates, and I never had kidney stones, so I never gave it a second thought. But anyway, what I discovered was, um, was that oxalates, um, which are a two carbon molecule found exclusively in plants and really high in the foods that we think are super healthy, like spinach, sweet potatoes, potatoes, nuts and seeds, for example, those things are super high in these oxalates, and oxalates um, can precipitate out in your uh, joints, tendons, muscles, um, perhaps arteries, um, and drive all of the all sorts of uh, chronic inflammation. Um, so arthritis, myalgias. Uh, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, all of these disorders may be driven by oxalates. And so over the past, gosh, eight or nine months, I um, have been uh, working on a reduced oxalate diet. Now the science is really kind of messy here. And um, Joe, you're the one that I'm, I just wanna mention here that you referred me to Sally K. Norton. Who is um, perhaps the world's expert in this area, and I had my first consult with her last week, and she has she has dug deep into this and has fantastic uh, uh, nutrition summaries for people with oxalate disorders and so I am just now a week or so into uh, changing my diet further to get lower in oxalates and just doing better and better all the time Uh, and i really believe that uh it may not be long and i'm i may be arthritis free completely free and in 2011 when i was 50 years old my arthritis was so severe i just uh i i was in i was in a, a devastated condition
0: well well thank you for uh sharing your personal story because it's going to be an inspiration to many people that a physician who was, like you really interested in health and committed, absolutely committed to doing the best he knew how to optimize his health and not taking any shortcuts, eating junk food and stuff, making what you thought were the best choices, still was having problems. So, you know, it's it's a perfect uh, example and illustration of not only that – you know, it's so easy to make these mistakes because so much of the information we're given is just simply not correct. But then also a strong testimony to the fact that your body has this enormous resiliency, the ability to recover if you give it the right things and stop giving it the things that are making it worse. It's just a matter of understanding what those are. And really, the more, at least as I've been studying this, the more I learn, the more I realize that it really is pretty simple. I mean, there's some complexities, but Pretty much boils down to the basic things that you outlined at the beginning of this thing: just eating real food, staying away from the processed foods, and and in some cases, you know, going more of a carnivore diet. And 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 some of these plants can be dangerous to human health. And you know, Paul Saladino has done a lot of work on that. And and for many people with autoimmune conditions, I think it's a pretty wise strategy. Now, I'm not saying all plants are evil; you should avoid them like the plague, but you know it for certain conditions, it can be a significant issue to tease out these details when you're doing most everything
1: right right. I think when I left residency uh in nineteen ninety four um I suddenly started you know me- earning more money and we cleaned up our diet, my wife and I and um that's when I think we started eating um spinach salads <laughs> that's honestly that I think that's where um, I started going downhill with my, with my joints was then, um, and I'm, I might just mention that, uh, a cup of spinach has something like 650 milligrams of oxalates and, um, a lot of you can about a cup a,
0: of raw or cooked spinach.
1: I don't think it really matters, Joe.
0: Well, you, yeah, it does. Cause you can get a lot more raw, uh, c- cooked spinach in a cup than you can raw. Oh, I see what you're saying.
1: <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. No, I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not dead sure. I think it
0: I think it's, might be cooked because that, that's pretty compressed.
1: Yeah, I was thinking- But it's still a lot oh.
0: and, and people easily can consume that with a spinach smoothie without even blinking. You can have an a, entire gram, a thousand milligrams of, of oxalates from, from spinach smoothies. Oh, I mean, there's God. so many of the better vegetables that you can have that are low oxalates. So I mean, it's an issue for many people, and it's a stealth issue for most. Right. They don't know it.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, gosh, I think why I would eat one or two cups of spinach in salads three or four times a week. That would just be massive doses when most people shouldn't get more than 150 milligrams of oxalates in a day. And uh many, many days I would be getting one to one and a half grams. So maybe about ten times as much as what's recommended. And over decades, you accumulate these and they're stored in your in your tissues. Now the good news is, is that they're water soluble and they can leach back out, but it can take years. So I, I'm I'm on apparently on a slow recovery, kind of like Getting rid of polyunsaturated oils in your body—it'll happen, but it's not going to happen overnight.
0: Yeah. Well, you're, you're still relatively young. Think about it. I mean, you've got—you uh, you may not even be halfway there yet, uh, especially with some of the innovations we've got coming down the line with respect to aging reversal. So, you know, it's good that you're on this path to improve these symptoms so that you can be optimized and enjoy the rest of your life pain-free with full vitality and energy.
1: Right. And the incredible thing for me is that um, twice in my life, and these, this is in the last two years, um, I uh, did a, a personal test with a carnivore diet. I did 20 days in 2018 of carnivore, strict carnivore. I didn't have anything besides meat. Uh, no eggs, nothing else, not a single plant food. And then I did again six days this in 2019 on carnivore. In both cases, my arthritis resolves something like 98%. It's just staggering. And so uh, that's obviously, the, I'm pointing that out because carnivore is essentially a zero oxalate diet. So for me, if I get the oxalates really low, I just rapidly improve. Not everybody is that fortunate and a lot of people don't have a lot of symptoms except to have kidney stones
0: yeah well i just need to insert a caution around your experience and that that was one it was a very short trial but uh one of the Sally's related to me that one of the biggest client populations would be those who are on a long-term carnivore because initially they do better, but then they start getting worse because they start unloading these oxalates and they, and they don't understand how they can optimize their n- nutrient intake and supplements to help their body excrete them. So as a result, they have a flare up and a crisis. Right. So you have to do it carefully. It just needed to be done under professional guidance or, or at least review it. Uh, in the literature to, to understand how to do this is, is I just would not go straight carnivore if you having these problems because you're going to run into problems
1: right yeah I uh, personally I don't want to be on a carnivore diet yeah. um, I, I, uh, I, I don't really have issues with carnivore in terms of health uh, you certainly can probably get everything you need out of a carnivore diet but Um, I found it very socially isolating and and I just don't like, I don't want to eat just meat, um, you know, for a diet on a permanent basis, but I'll tell you what, it was a great test and it told me that all of my troubles was coming from plant foods, um, in terms of my arthritis. And that's really the only health condition that I have. Yeah. So
0: and it also illustrates another point that I like to share with people, and that is that pain is a gift, if and it's important to view it as such because it's your the only way your body can give you the feedback to help you understand that something you're doing is not right. How else is it going to speak to you? It's not going to be writing it to you on a whiteboard or a chalkboard and saying this is this is what you need to do. It's going to give you pain, and pain is the motivation you require to change whatever you're doing that's causing the pain. Now sometimes. You know the pain is sort of a, a signal that is unfortunate because there's nothing you can do about it. But most of the time, like in your cases and many others, most others I would I'd speculate that pain is what's necessary to cause you to change behavior.
1: Right. Yeah. I I think that's a powerful message, Joe. That that in in many ways it may be that I may I may be I consider myself lucky that i had this because otherwise i probably wouldn't i wouldn't have learned all this about diet and i would have been going down the wrong path knowing it or not um and so uh yeah some those of us who have had um, obvious troubles and somehow begin to connect those to something wrong in our diet it's a blessing it has to be a blessing if you can figure out what it is that's driving
0: And it certainly was for you in, in spades. I mean, it, it motivated you to, to pursue a course of investigation that has enlightened tens of thousands not hundreds of thousands of people about the fundamental causes of disease. And I, and I am not just blowing smoke when I say that was the best 30 minute presentation to, to summarize how, what, how we got this epidemic of chronic disease. I mean, if, all you need to do is wash it, understand it, and make simple, relatively simple changes to avoid virtually every single disease that's going to take you out prematurely. It's crazy. And you didn't even, you know what, it just occurred to me, you didn't even talk about Alzheimer's in that, but that's clearly related to it also.
1: Oh, if I would have had time, I, I would go, I would go deep into, uh, I, I would go into all those, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, metabolic syndrome, all of those deserve, that time, but you know, I think that the total time I had for that presentation was forty minutes, and that's you know very understandable. That that's honestly, that you know, normally they're only thirty minutes, so they gave me ten minutes extra because it was a big topic. But while we're on this subject, can I go back to macular degeneration? Sure, sure. For yeah, a moment, I, I'd love to mention this. I mean, since this has been my primary area of uh, interest and expertise is macular degeneration and this is you are an ophthalmologist (laughs) (laughs) right and that's what you know many people are looking to me for um now this is not i know that people are sometimes they want more advice about the diet but it's uh and again i'll just mention it's it's so simple eliminate those four things the sugars refined wheat flours vegetable oils and trans fats and make any kind of food you want but this is a this is something that I really haven't connected to before. So this will be a first that I want to uh, connect right now is, is I want to talk about uh, three populations, just real quick with regard to macular degeneration is we're talk about West Africans first. And now I talked about two of these, uh, or wrote about two of these in my book. And one is, is the um, Africans of Southwestern rural Nigeria. And in that population, there was a study that showed that in people over the age of about 50, I believe it was, they had 0.1 percent macular degeneration prevalence. That's about one in a thousand. Now, just 240 miles away in Onitsha, Nigeria, um, the prevalence of macular degeneration was 3.2 percent. So it's 32-fold higher. 240 miles away, they're both West African populations, why would one be 32 fold higher well the people in southwestern rural nigeria they couldn't get processed foods the evidence clearly showed that they didn't have grocery stores they didn't have restaurants they were living off native traditional foods, so they wouldn't get sugars flours vegetable oils and trans fats they weren't in their diet the people in Onitsha, nigeria where the prevalence of macron degeneration was 3.2 percent they had access to all those but at far lower concentrations of vegetable oils than what we get. Now, there's a third population, and this is the one that I didn't tie to directly in in the book, and if I could go back, I would put them all together so that you'd see them in order. Well, this is what's interesting. So Barbados, down in the, I'll call it the Caribbean, but down in the Caribbean region is a population of West Africans. That's their heritage, and in a study, that came out in 1994, I think it was, this population, 97% African, essentially, their macular degeneration was 24.3%, 243 times greater than the Africans of southwestern rural Nigeria. Now, Barbados is known by nutrition researchers all around the world as a mecca, for processed food. They're importing almost all of their food, and you and I know what that means. It means it's processed, it's it's all, you know, sugar, refined flours, and vegetable oils. That's what you can package up and send across continents, and people can eat it months later, and it's still, you know, called food. Um, That's what these people are eating, and they have a quote, world profile of metabolic disease in in Barbados. Uh, Metabolic syndrome, obesity, heart disease, cancer, type two diabetes, all that, and 24.3% macular degeneration prevalence. So 243 times greater, I'm just gonna repeat it, 243 times greater than the Africans of Southwestern rural Nigeria who can't get processed foods. They're all three the same West African heritage. How can you argue with that? You know, I mean, in terms of your ophthalmologist how- colleagues do. <laughs> well, I know. Or they just don't. They just don't listen. Uh, they don't respond to this. But how could we, in any possible way, conclude that that's about aging and genetics, which is the primary uh, um, uh, belief system about macular degeneration today? And while we're here, I'll just mention Japan in the late 1970s, 1974 to 1979. they're Macular degeneration was 0.2 percent, but by 2007 it was 11. I have to look here. I have this note. um, 11.4 percent. That's a 57-fold increase in the prevalence of macular degeneration in a 30-year period. Now the difference was in Japan in 1961, their PUFA vegetable oil consumption was nine grams a day per person by 2007 it was um it was about 40 grams a day so it elevated four and a half fold right that's what happened was their vegetable oil consumption went up four and a half fold um, in around 30 years new zealand same kind of story in the 1960, 1969 their macular degeneration prevalence for people over 50 was 1.3 percent and in 2014 <laughs> for macular degeneration prevalence for people over the age of 45 was 10.3%. That's an eight-fold increase in the prevalence of their macular degeneration in that roughly, what, 45-year period. But their vegetable oil in, in 1960 was less than one gram a day. And by uh, 1991 forward, it was around 20 grams a day. So again, we see a huge increase in vegetable oils, and we see a massive increase in macular degeneration prevalence. Yes. So all I, all I can tell people is sometimes I people say, "Well, you don't tell us what it's going to do for us." Well, it takes macular degeneration is is kind of like Alzheimer's or maybe my arthritis or something or uh, any number of other chronic diseases. You can't. Just change your diet and fix the damage, but you may at least stop it and you may reverse some of the early damage, but the, you always want to get to the root cause. That's what this is all about. Let's get to the root cause and fix that so we can stop progression of these disorders and you'll get healthier in every other way by doing that.
0: Yes, and uh, thank you for helping us understand and really emphasize the importance of these basic, simple, basic foundational principles that are not complex. And if you understand them, and then you look at populations, you can easily predict outcomes as you just referenced in in your examples. So it's not hard folks you just need to get back to the basics and by doing so you're going to improve the most one of the most important structures in your body bio structures, which is your mitochondria you're going to make that thing crank like crazy you'll be able to burn fat you're not going to bust up the inner mitochondrial membranes and you'll be spitting out atp like to no end and you'll have all the energy you need and you won't be getting these carotid diseases and dying prematurely like your friends and relatives who aren't following this advice. So it's simple stuff, uh, pretty basic. I mean, there's not a lot of new rocket science here, but it's so important because once you understand it and, and to see that, especially the like historical context, I mean, it's just so motivating to to know that this is what's caused it, and that it's so easy to change. And your body, although it may take a while, I mean, you've got you know the rest of your life, so you start now and your body will recover from all the most, all of the damage you've done to it.
1: Right. It's, it's almost, um, sad that we have to go to such great lengths to try to prove our points. And quite frankly, I mean, I, as you know, Joe, I may have, I think I've mentioned to you before, I I actually get a little frustrated that we have to dig into all the molecular detail, um, to try to, prove our points and and mechanistically describe what's going on i mean there's a part of me that loves it and a part of me that hates it but but when it comes down to applying these principles it's just fantastically simple now i tell uh people all over the world who come to me about this that no it's not easy you have to be vigilant and you have to uh make sure that you're very cautious about what you're consuming, but as far as understanding what it is that's driving this, that concept is really very, very simple.
0: Yeah, it's grade school simple. I mean, this is- It really is. Can be taught, taught in every elementary school in the world. The, the importance of this, I mean this, how much more vital information can you teach kids? in their education other than to what they need to consume to stay healthy the rest of their life. It couldn't be more fundamental. It could not be more fundamental.
1: I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. All right. Well,
0: listen, uh, maybe give us some, uh, mentioned your website and your cure AMD book and, you know, other places people can find out more information about what you're doing.
1: Okay. Unfortunately I didn't grab a copy of the, Book to show here, but it's called uh, my book is ancestral dietary strategy to prevent and treat macular degeneration. You can get to a link to links for it uh, at our website. Um, now the the website is it's Cure AMD Foundation. We're a nonprofit organization, and um, w- there you can find uh, links to the book. The book is now available. Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and uh, almost all places where books are sold. Not in bookstores, I don't believe, but it's available online at all of those retailers. Again, the website is uh, cureamd.org. And if you want to go there and if you want to reach out to me, just uh, you can go to the contact uh, link for that and you can send me a message and I'll come straight to my email and I answer every single message.
0: You're so, a glutton for punishment.
1: Yeah, but you know, <laughs> I, I mean, that's why I'm in this is to is to help people, and I love it. And I, you know, we just have uh, hundreds or maybe thousands of people that have reached out to me, and this is changing their lives. And since I'm no longer practicing, uh, yeah. it's a lot of great. Feedback. No, I
0: I agree uh, that feed, that feedback is so crucial to feed your feed you. I mean, it, yeah, it is to me and you know, I I don't interact by email, but when I go to events and I can dialogue with people and get the type of feedback it's because if you're, when you're working alone, doing the research and writing and reading, you know, that's not very nourishing, but uh, the feedback certainly is.
1: Right. Right. Research is a lonely business,
0: (laughs) but it's fun (laughs) if you like it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I do love it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for everything you've done and will do. And uh, you know, as I've said before, I, in my view, you're the Weston price of the 21st century. Uh, he did it with dentistry you're doing it with the eye and ophthalmology and and really showing us through this this disease process what what the introduction of all these processed foods does and how it damages our body and 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 thank you for really illustrating because i don't know that i've seen anyone do it at least as elegantly as you the the, the mechanism and you know i i think it's important that we do provide that for cuz there are people who lo- who really enjoy the science and are that on basis, I think they should be, you need to have that to understand how this damage occurs. And you really provide a brilliant illustration on how that happens. So thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Joe. It's, it's an honor and a pleasure. And thank you for what you do. Uh, and I appreciate you so much reaching out to me to help us get this message out. What you've done is, uh, for people around the world, is just incredible. I'm just a little part of that. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you.